We got through verses 1 through 13 last week, and we're going to begin uh, looking at 14 through the end of the chapter. But before we do that, I want to start reading once again at verse 9 and just comment briefly uh, on uh, the on the day of the Lord and uh, and just a, a couple of aspects about that that we didn't cover last time. So uh, let's read verses 9 through 13 and then we'll pray and get right into our study and then continue on through the, to the end of the chapter. Okay, Isaiah 13 verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Father, we do ask that you would continue to grant us Lord, your wisdom through the power of your Holy Spirit, wisdom and understanding as we study your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so before we continue on in our study of this chapter of Isaiah and as a point of review, it's important to look once again at these verses that mark in prophetic terms the day of the Lord. Remember that the day of the Lord is not one single day, it really is a season of time and uh, and it's not a season of, of, of gladness it, uh, it's marked as we have seen throughout the Old Testament especially in the book of Joel but in many other places the fact that it is a day of darkness a day of gloom a day of sadness because this is now God having to come and bring judgment for the sins of men and the sins of, of those that have rejected the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and rejected the truth of God and the truth of God's Word. And of course, this is a, in bringing to end and, and, and bringing to a, a consummation then the ages uh, as we may know it and uh, the beginning of uh, the age of, of the rule of Christ on this earth, the millennial reign of Christ, which we'll talk about more as we get into Isaiah, but uh, I want to comment briefly on the aspect of the justice of God's wrath because it, it's, it's stated in such a way that sometimes really freaks people out. I mean, it says, uh, you know, behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger. And we want to be careful not to get the wrong idea about this issue because the wrath of God is the very appropriate, just, and fair payment for man's sin. Listen carefully. The wrath of God is the very appropriate, just, and fair payment for man's sin. 
You see, it's interesting that some people have that tremendous problem with this. You know, well, if God is so good, why, why does you know why would He judge people? Why would He do what He does? You know, why why are, why do people attribute certain judgments to God? You know, why, why would God, if God is so good? You know, so they have this 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 concept, you know, that you know if God is so good, why is He, you know, why is He angry with people? But of course, they're not looking at it from the standpoint that man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Man has sinned, you know, from, from the very fall of man, from the very beginning. And stained, you know, man when he fell, has stained us all. And so, you know, it's just interesting that they, they, they have this problem. But what they need to do is to think of some of mankind's atrocities. Think of mankind's atrocities that have been committed from one person to another or from one race of people to another. Think about that. Think about what man has done to man. Is it appropriate for society to punish a man who stalks, who tortures and kills another person? Well, of course it is. This is why we have laws. This is why we have justice, as we say we have. Is it appropriate then for a nation or a group of nations to bring to an end a series of atrocities committed by another nation against a group of people through military means, in so doing, ending that reign of terror? Go back to World War II. Go back to what had to happen at the time when, when the, the Nazis were, were, were uh, exterminating millions of Jews. That would have just continued on. Something had to happen. The world was horrified by those actions. And I have to tell you that that, that, uh, that destruction was nothing compared to what's going to come in the last days. What's going to come in this, this time called the day of the Lord that we've seen here mentioned in our text. So God's wrath against Babylon in this case is no different. And remember that we're talking about the burden of Babylon, the judgment upon Babylon here in chapters 13, 14, and 21. And so God's wrath against Babylon in this case is no different. It was the appropriate penalty for their sins. In the near fulfillment of the judgment of Babylon, there was the sense that the whole world was falling apart for them. See, once God let loose the armies that were to come against Babylon to judge Babylon for what they did to his people, all of a sudden to them, thinking that they were the the very power of the world, all of a sudden they weren't that anymore and the world was falling apart and around them, all around them. And in the, in the future, an ultimate fulfillment. You see, because there was a near fulfillment to that prophecy, which would be a few years after Isaiah gave the prophecy to Babylon, a few decades actually. But there's also that far fulfillment or that future fulfillment and it is the ultimate fulfillment at the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the second coming of the Messiah in which the whole world will be coming apart at the seams. The whole world. And the statement in verse 11, if you look at verse 11 in your Bibles, it says, I will punish the world for its evil. Now what, what is that telling us? That is the prophetic identification of Babylon with the world that is ripe for judgment. 
As God is judging Babylon in the near fulfillment, God is going to judge the world as Babylon in the far fulfillment. You see, Babylon is mentioned 287 times in the scriptures, more than any other city except for Jerusalem. It was, in fact, a literal city, Babylon, on the Euphrates River. And as we saw last time in Genesis chapter 11, Babylon became, after the flood, the very seed of civilization that expressed organized hostility against God. Who led that organized hostility? We talked about it last week. Nimrod was mentioned in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11. But you know, that seems, in a sense, tame compared to today where there are so many nations that are organized in their hostility toward God. In particular, communist nations. Nations that bring slavery to their people. Oppressive nations. And this Islamic terrorism that is going on today that is affecting many more uh, nations than can be imagined. And if we're not careful in this country, there's going to be a tremendous problem as well here. It already has been. Remember 9-11? I wish more people would remember that day and what happened that day. Seems like we've forgotten five years down the road. And you say, well, well but wait a minute. They're, 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 they say they're doing this for their God, but not the God. The one true God. Folks, Allah is not the one true God. There's only one true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who sent His only begotten Son, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. You see, what they're doing is building up a tremendously organized hostility against the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so it became then Babylon. It became the capital of the kingdom that conquered Judah with great cruelty and brutality. Remember that God used Babylon. God used these nations to correct His people, to discipline His people, to punish His people. These are words that I'm I'm not using loosely. I'm, I'm using them very carefully because we see that throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. God used the Babylonians. God used the Assyrians, you see. God used them to bring them under submission to where they had to cry out to their God to rescue them. But it was in their cruelty. It was in their brutality. It was in their ravaging of their people, the ravaging of their things, that God says, that's enough. You see, it was the going beyond and to the Jews, Babylon was the essence of all evil. You see. The personification of cruelty, the, the enemy of God's people, and the epitome and the type of sin, carnality, greed, and lust. That's all they saw around them. Because they were a heathen nation. A nation serving many gods. A nation worshiping many gods. 
And it's interesting that in the New Testament, the world system of the last days is distinguished religiously and commercially as Babylon. Now, I'll ask you to read Revelation 17 and 18. Not now, but read it later. Because that describes this very world system that is yet to be judged to its, full, to its fullness, which is, which is going to happen. It's already being set up. And God's summation in verse 13 here in, in, in Isaiah 13 is decisive and it is beyond question. God's summation right here. Because he's, uh, in, in verse 13 he says, Therefore, Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. You see that, that, that decisiveness? You see that it is beyond question what is going to happen. And so with that in mind, you, you see, it, it brings to mind then some other prophecies, or one prophecy in particular, and one uh, mention of it in the New Testament. For example, in the prophet Haggai, or Haggai, in, in Haggai 2, 6 and 7. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now it's an interesting thing if you'll keep that slide up for just a minute, because it says they shall come to the desire of all nations. And, and that particular phrase, and you'll notice it's capitalized in the New King James Version, mainly because it's, it, it's not, you know, we're, not, we're not dealing with capitals in the Hebrew, but the capitals here are to distinguish this particular statement as being a prophetic statement concerning Messiah. And so it is a messianic statement. It says, I'll shake the nations, they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory. There is going to be a day when the nations will only desire Jesus Christ. And it's coming, that day's coming. Do they desire Him now? No. Far cry from it, right? We don't see really nations uh, desiring Jesus or that Jesus is the desire of, of, of any major nation. I mean, there, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who do desire Christ to come, but not as nations. There will be a day in the millennial kingdom that all the nations will desire Him. And Paul in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 to 29, makes reference to this particular thought here because he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they, do, if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Are you understanding what he's saying? If they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And folks, this, this whole statement is to draw our attention to the seriousness of knowing who God is, knowing who Jesus is, knowing it, 
from that standpoint of that serious nature of our reverence and our respect and our godly fear of God Himself, of the Messiah Himself, of everything that God is and God represents. And you see, that's, that's kind of been lax in, in our day and time. It's okay for us, you know, to enjoy the fruits of, and the benefits of, of God and of His Holy Spirit. It's, it's okay for us to do that. We should rejoice in that. As a matter of fact, the Lord wants us to rejoice in these things. But we also have to take, a, take hold of a seriousness in our hearts about God in these last days. And really what we're finding here the Apostle saying is that it is certainly wiser to trust in a God who is unshakable and a God who is immovable rather than in man or the ground on which we stand or anything earthly and temporal, the air that we breathe. We're not to trust in all that. We're to trust in the God who cannot be shaken. We're to trust in a God who cannot be moved. Everything else is going to move. If you're from California, you already know that. The ground moves all the time over there. And there's going to be places that we think, oh, you know, that'll never happen. It'll happen. You know why? Because God said it would. And more and more we're finding out that there are places in the world that never experienced even minor earthquakes. They're experiencing earthquakes today and, and some areas that are even getting major earthquakes. And of course, because of all of the technology that we've, dis, you know, that we've discovered over the last few years, uh, they, they, can de- they can detect all of these fault lines and, and, and they know exactly where all these things are happening. And it's, it, you know, the, the, the threat is increasing. The threat is increasing. Jesus said there will be earthquakes. Things are going to be shaking. But that's nothing when until... You know, I mean, that's nothing compared to what we're going to see when God shakes the heavens and the earth as if he puts his hand and does one of these things. How many of you love those little, you know, snowflake things, you know, little water things and you, know, you move it around and, you, and then the snowflakes, you know, first thing you want to do is shake it all up. I can't believe how expensive those things are anymore. I don't have one. <laughs> but, you know, it just reminds us, you know, that, you know, there's this, this whole lot of shaking going on, you know, is going to happen again uh, in a greater way. So we have to be we have to be ready. And uh, the questions that we need to ask is, who will stand when He appears? Who is going to stand when God appears? Who is going to stand when Christ appears? Who can stand? There is an answer to that question, by the way. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord will stand. Only those who call upon the name of the Lord will stand. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord, call, whom the Lord calls. And I'm just amazed at how many people... Have, have tried to spiritualize this and to say, well, it's not really talking about Mount Zion. It's not really talking about Jerusalem. Yes, it is because God cares about His city. He cares about His people. He has not cast them out. He has not cast them away. 
And that land today, that land which we call Israel, which many people call Palestine, but, but that land today is the very center and the key to what we see in, in happening in, in, in all of the world today. That whole region is the whole focal point of this world. Why? And people are saying, oh no, that's, you know, there's no Israel any longer. Well, yes, there is. And God cares for them. Read, 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 read Romans chapter 11. That, that's enough to just, you know, that's how, that says it all. Or read 9 through 11, but read 11 because that, that tells us God's not done with his people. So this is a promise to his people. It is also a promise that the, the apostles have taken and said, you know, it's also whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, of course. It's universal if we'll call upon the name of the Lord. And then the definition came to us that, you know, wh what name? There is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. So it has been clarified for us. The Mashiach, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. No other name. No other name. There is not another name by which a man can be saved except through Jesus Christ. Okay, so now Isaiah turns his attention specifically to Babylon and expresses its destruction in relatively normal and uh, human terms here. If you look at verses 14 and 15 now, now we're moving on. It shall be as the hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up. Every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. Everyone who is found will be thrust through and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. That's the judgment upon Babylon. And the picture given to us seems to indicate a scattering of frightened people fleeing in all directions to native lands. And it has to be remembered that Babylon was a world capital, the center of, of world trade, with people from every nationality coming together for that trade. And as the noise of the approaching enemies is heard, the people run like gazelles. And why is that mentioned there in, in King James' uh, the role? But why is it mentioned that the people run like gazelles? It, because it is the most timid and easily startled of hunted deer. They scatter like sheep without a shepherd. And those that cannot flee, the Babylonians themselves, and those, those in Babylon, I mean, they have no other nation. They're, that is their nation. Where are they going to go? Well, they're killed by their cruel and ruthless captors. They're thrust through. They fall by the sword. The picture of God's judgment here can be captured in, in a word. The word is unrelenting unrelenting to relent means to become less stern if a person relents he becomes less stern abandons one's harsh intentions and becomes more lenient that is to relent there are times when we see in the scriptures that word is used for God God to relent from punishing you know, God will ease off the word is used 
for the Lord. But therefore, unrelenting, you see. Unrelenting is defined as not becoming less in intensity and severity. And so unceasing, you see, in intensity and in severity as a lion, listen to this, as a lion overtakes a gazelle and utterly consumes it. We've seen that on the, you know, Discovery or Animal Channel or Animal World, whatever it is. You know, you see those uh, pictures out there in the safaris and all that, and, and you see the gazelle, you know, and then he comes his lion. And then, boom, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's like go to commercial because that lion's just eating that whole thing up. And that's, and that's what that word means. It is an unrelenting pursuit. There is no escape, you see. No escape from God's unrelenting judgment. And wouldn't this be, and think about this for a moment, wouldn't this be the same picture of the unrelenting judgment that was poured out upon Jesus on the cross? You have to think about that. There was nothing that stopped the intensity or stopped the severity of the, of, 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 of the judgment that came upon the sinless Savior on the cross. Nothing. That was unrelenting judgment. But what was being judged? Our sins. Our sins upon Jesus. That was unrelenting. Getting back to this picture of judgment upon Babylon, verse 16 says, Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Aren't things like that happening today? When Wes Bentley was here a couple of weeks ago and talking about that, you know, the, the, what, what's happening over there in, in Africa, how this quote-unquote Lord's resistance army is, is, is killing children, killing their parents in front of the children, having the children kill their own parents. But in this case, their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. And you know, as sad as this is, please listen, as sad as this is, this is only what the Babylonians had done to others. This is what they had done when they went in and conquered a land. When they went in and conquered a nation. When they went in and conquered a people. This is what they did. And most importantly, this is what they did when they conquered Judah and God's people. In Psalm 137, look at that. Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed. Happy the one who repays you as you have served us. What a statement. As you have done, so it will be done to you. God's judgment upon this cruelty and barbaric brutality. And so how appropriate that after predicting that children would be dashed into pieces in the day of the Lord, that the prophet predicted the same thing in the coming invasion of Babylon by the Medes. 
which is an amazing prophecy here, verses 17 and following, uh, when you consider that Babylon and the, and the Medes were extremely distant from Isaiah as far as time. And they had not yet risen as great nations. I mentioned this a little bit last time. You know, Babylon was not yet the great nation, but they were already being, they were already being singled out for judgment for what they were going to do in the future. And here we're even given the name of those who are going to come against them, which is even further from Isaiah. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. You see, here again, here comes that judgment. The way they treated other people, they're going to be treated that way. And by the way, these Medes, uh, they did not come for gold and silver. As they went out, as God was going to give them the, 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 the very uh, uh, call to go out and, and, and judge Babylon, they weren't going for gold and silver. They would not let themselves be bribed, and that's the idea here. The reason why silver and gold are mentioned here is to say, they're not a people to be bribed. You can't bribe us from doing what we came to do. We'll have your gold, we'll have your silver, but... That's not going to be why we come. They're not going to save Babylon for its loot. Their goal was to destroy their enemies with the utmost ruthlessness and cruelty. That is how they were going to come. But you have to understand, it's not going to come immediately, and I'll tell you, I'll explain that in a moment. But passages such as this, which mention the Babylonians and the Medes before they became world powers, make the cynics and the skeptics somewhat crazy, you see. And they drive them to conclude that Isaiah was written after the events prophesied. That's why there are those who believe that there were actually three Isaiahs who wrote the book of Isaiah. Yet it's real clear that there was only one Isaiah. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to strengthen that thought as we, as we move along through this book. But there was only one Isaiah. And... and the very nature and essence of a sovereign God and an all-knowing God uh, is, is what, we need to, uh, what we need to preserve here. In other words, oh my goodness, he must have, prophet, he must have uh, you know, said it as a prophecy, but it written way after when it already happened. Well, what does that say about a God that already knows things before it happens? You see, so who are these critics and cynics anyway? You know, these are the guys that have those, you know, doctorates and all kinds of stuff, but they don't believe in the power of God. This is the power of God. As a matter of fact, later on in the book of Isaiah, the one Isaiah names the leader of the Medes, Cyrus. I don't want to get ahead of myself. That's way down the road. Boy, we're going in a couple of years, we'll get there. <laughs> oh, just kidding. it won't be that long. Hopefully next year. <laughs> so, but you know, they, they, but that's what they do. They say, well, they got to try to figure things out. Hey, how do you figure out a God that's unfigurable, outable? <laughs> you can't figure him out. He says, I'm way beyond finding out. He gives the prophecy. Look, those prophecies, by the way, that were given thousands of years ago and hundreds of years before Christ 
if the ones, if all of the prophecies that were given 700, 600, 500 years before Jesus all came to pass when Jesus was born. All the prophecies, 1,000 years, 1,500 years, almost 2,000 years, 2,500 years later, are going to be fulfilled in our time, and they're happening right now. Everybody thought there was never going to be another Babylon. You know that there's a Babylon today? I'm going to talk about that at the end here. Whenever the end is. I want to talk about it. So, I believe in the God that has seen the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And he impresses upon the hearts of his prophets. Folks, the prophets didn't understand this all the time. God wasn't going around looking for somebody, can you understand how I do things? No? Well, then I've got to move on to somebody else. No, he talked to people that didn't understand anything. Just like you and me. And God just opened their eyes and they saw this stuff and they wrote it down. And they wondered, whoa, what is going to happen here? When is it going to happen? Many times they thought that was going to happen immediately. That's why they didn't understand fully. But that's okay, because God understands. You see, doesn't the God who created all things know the future specifically and in detail? Shouldn't the God who created all things, the God who is outside of that time continuum we know, the God of eternity, shouldn't He Know the future specifically and in detail? Of course he should. So is anything too hard for him to do or to know? There's nothing too hard for him to do or to know. Isaiah 46 verse 10. I read this last time, but it says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. God is sovereign. Genesis 18, going all the way back to the first book of the Bible. Genesis 18, verse 14 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Folks, there was nothing too hard for the Lord to, you know, to bring a baby into the life of Sarah, who was 90 years old. Whew. I mean, think about it. Today. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. All Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. It isn't too hard for God. Jeremiah 32, verse 27. Behold, God says, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Of course not. He's God. We got to believe that He's God and that He has the power. To open up the vision of these prophets to see into the future. To write it down. Detailed. They may not understand it, but you know what? God does. And that's, what, that's all that matters when you think about it. God knows what He's doing. And as for the bows mentioned there in verse 18, you read that part? Also their bows will dash the young men to pieces there. The reference actually is to the Persians. And remember oftentimes... We have put together the Medes and the Persians. You see them placed together in his historical 
writings as well as in, here in, in, in the best historical writing, which is the scriptures. The references to the Persians who were allies with the Medes and were known for being great archers. They were great with a bow. And so, you know, that reference would probably be to the Persians. And as a matter of fact, Cyrus, the ruler of the Medes and the Persians, was himself a Persian. And by the way, the area of, of Persia is where Iran is today. Interesting. Getting back to verse 19 now of our text, and almost done here. Let's read all the way down to the end of the chapter. It says, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. What was left when Sodom and Gomorrah was done? Nothing. You see, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of pride, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, it will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there, but wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. The hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come, and her days will not be prolonged. There are those who believe that the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah suggests not only its complete destruction, but also its moral cause. And that's something to think about. The moral issues of heathen nations, completely heathen in their ways. And while this may be true, the idea and the image that Sodom and Gomorrah conjure up is that of total destruction. And that's not how ancient Babylon was conquered by the Medes. And this is what I wanted to tell you. It's not the way they were conquered by the Medes. So the fulfillment would come a little later, but when Cyrus conquered Babylon in 538 B.C. He did it by diverting the mighty Euphrates River, which ran right through the middle of the city. He then marched his army up the dry riverbed into the city. But the city was taken with hardly any loss of life. Babylon continued to prosper. And when Alexander the Great conquered Persia, he made it his new capital just before he died in 323 B.C. From there, the city went through a gradual degradation until by 20 B.C., the historian Strabo described it as a vast desolation, a wilderness. So you see the gradual destruction of Babylon in the near fulfillment. It wasn't destroyed as we would sense it. So is this now really giving us a picture of the future fulfillment of, of Babylon? Keep that in mind. Because in the adjacent area there is today the city of Hilla, about 10 kilometers north of, of, of this region. But the site of Babylon's ruins was uninhabited except by wild animals and birds for thousands of years until 
someone named Saddam Hussein built a palace near to the ruins of ancient Babylon. And he began reconstruction of Nebuchadnezzar's capital city. And what he did, <laughs> this is really interesting, what he did was when after they began this excavation, and of course building upon that old city, the, the ancient city, as they began to raise up the walls and began to restructure and, 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 and uh, reinforce the walls of the city of Babylon, he had his people begin to put carve in his name as the builder of the city. Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, the builder of Babylon. The soldiers who went in uh, when, Bab when uh, Baghdad and, uh, was captured and when Iraq was, was, was captured by the uh, Allied forces, and primarily American soldiers, when they went in and they saw these, uh, these things, you know, they noticed the carvings, you know, and... Uh, uh, of course, they translated it and all said that's what it, that's what it said. But he was putting, and, and by the way, he was also carving his his image next to Nebuchadnezzar's image, you know, as you know, father like father like son, I suppose. And so, in 2003, that area became known as Camp Babylon, and it's been turned over since then to the Iraqi government for the sake of of preserving the, you know, the. Uh, uh, the antiquities and, and, and the uh, uh, the old the ancient stuff there. So, but that, but it's still in, in essence is uninhabited. No Arabian tents are built there. Just like we see in, in the scriptures. There have been others, but only for a short time. So that's just a little bringing up to, to date with what's happening over there. But a couple of years after Isaiah, a few years after Isaiah, Jeremiah the prophet also predicted the fall of Babylon. But his prophecy also didn't quite happen completely. Why? Near fulfillment? Far fulfillment. He said Babylon would fall suddenly and be destroyed. Jeremiah 51, verse 8. Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. Compare that, if you will, to what we've already seen in Isaiah, and then compare it to uh, what the Apostle John writes and records about Babylon in, in, in Revelation, chapter 18. Because there, John records that Babylon would be judged in one hour. Listen to the words here in Revelation 18, verse 10. Standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. You know, it's interesting. With, with, with all of the things that we found over there today, and in the last few years, you, know, you, you have to start, you know, start to think, Maybe it's not just a spiritual Babylon. Maybe it's not just. Maybe there's going to be a complete destruction of that city you know, immediately as well as the commercial and religious Babylon that we'll talk about 
at another time. But it used to be that we try to spiritualize the Babylon in Revelation because there was nothing left of the old Babylon. But not anymore. And it's interesting how similar Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Revelation all are. It sounds like they're talking about the same event. That Babylon shall never be inhabited again is a prophecy that is once again yet to be fulfilled. So there was no inhabit, you know, inhabitants of that land for, for thousands of years. And of course, then came the, the nation of Iraq, which is a relatively modern nation, young nation. But now is, is resurrected this thought that there's a new Babylon there. And uh, we'll meet Cyrus again, as I said, later on in Isaiah. But until then, suffice it to say that Babylon is slated to play a prominent role in the tribulation period, the seven years of tribulation that is to come upon the earth. Its doom, as we have seen, is already vividly painted for us in Revelation 17 and 18. And I want you to read those chapters. And so when we encounter difficulties like this passage, when we encounter difficulties, we, we first must reaffirm our utter confidence in the Word of God. We need to affirm our confidence in the Word of God. The Word of God does not contradict itself. We just have to remember how many years over time things are having to be uh, fulfilled, how many prophecies have to be fulfilled, whether near or far. These are things we have to consider. So if there is any difficulty at all, it is due to our lack of knowledge. I can remember, and I know Pastor James, and I, and I can remember years, years ago, 30-some years ago, when we were studying prophecy back then. And, and everything has changed since then, but we were studying back then, and all of a sudden the Soviet Union, the USSR, was a prominent player in everything. And we thought, oh, yes, it's, you know, there's... You know, the communist threat and all of that. They're, they're so big and so, uh, you know, looming so large over Israel because they were north, you know, directly north, just above, uh, you know, Turkey and all of that. But, uh, you know, they were, the, they were the Meshach. There was the Gog and the Magog, you know. And there was the Ezekiel 38 was about to happen, you know, back in the 70s when we were studying this. You know, we've come down and we've seen how everything's changed. But it's clarified things. We had less knowledge then, we have more knowledge now. But it's clarified things. After the Soviet Union fell and became somewhat of a, you know, a confederation of independent states and nations, have you noticed that all of those southern nations bordering what is Russia now above Israel, all those nations, the names end in four letters, S-T-A-N, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, go over a little bit to the west, Pakistan, Afghanistan. What is that telling us? When you see those letters, you're dealing with Islamic nations or nations that have uh, an Islamic majority. Muslim nations. There were Muslims in, in those countries that once were part of the Soviet Union. Who's causing the greatest threat against Israel today? Who's hating Israel the most today of all nations? Every nation that has some connection to Islam. Is God's word true? It is. You see? Only the names have changed. 
but not to protect the innocent. Only the names have changed to bring out the judgment because it's coming. Will God protect his people? He will protect his remnant. Will Israel be saved? The Bible says it will be. So we have to remember that the prophets had a way of merging the immediate fulfillment and the distant future fulfillment. The immediate future and the distant future without always indicating any time signals. Some prophecies are still future, but they're securely in God's hands. And we can give honor and glory to God for that. So as we study God's Word, there'll be times when we say, okay, well, when's that going to happen? It kind of did happen a little bit. It's going to happen in a greater sense later, but it's going to happen. The important thing is, God's Word is true, and we can trust it. Let's pray.